The year was 2002, Montgomery, Alabama. Some 5,000 young people had gathered for a conference on evangelism. The previous sessions had been marked by typical youth group sort of stuff with lots of jokes and lots of dancing and singing and altar calls that were marked by uh, emotionalism and all the things that typically come in those, those settings. And then a speaker got up and took the stage and preached what has likely become, if not the most, one of the most watched sermons in history. The pastor's name was Paul Washer. I'm going to read you a portion of what he said to the crowd. There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night and troubled me all throughout the morning, and that is this. Within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. And many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend an eternity in hell. You say, Pastor, how can you say such a thing? I can say such a thing because I don't do my Christian work in America. I spend most of my time preaching in South America, in Africa, and Eastern Europe. And I want you to know that when you take a look at American Christianity, it is based more upon a godless culture than it is upon the Word of God. So many people are deceived. Deceived into believing that because they prayed a prayer one time in their life that they are going to heaven. And then when they look at uh, and then when they look around at others who profess to know Christ and see those people also just as worldly as the world. And because they compare themselves by themselves, nothing troubles their heart. They think, well, I'm the same as most. I watch things I shouldn't watch on television and I, lack a, I laugh about the very things that God hates. I wear clothing that is sensual. I look like the world. I walk like the world. I love the music of the world. I love so much that is in the world, but God, God bless, I'm a Christian. And why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I want you to know, he said, the greatest heresy in American evangelical and Protestant church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, that he will definitely come in. You will not find that in any place in Scripture. What you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance, a turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, and a love for the things that God loves, a growing in holiness and a desire not to be like the world and not to be like the great majority of American Christians, but to be like Jesus Christ. At that point, you could hear on the recording, people began to cheer and to clap. And Paul Washer, after a moment of silence, said, I don't know why you are clapping. I'm talking about you. There was a shocking silence afterwards, as you imagine. Conviction fell. Many were saved. Because God had spoken. That sort of stun, stunning reception to that word is, is very likely how Israel felt when Amos delivered chapter 2 of his oracle. You'll remember the setting from last week. It was 760 B.C. where political and economic prosperity were abounding, but moral corruption among the nations and among God's people was also abounding. So God raised up a prophet to roar on his behalf. And in chapter 1, uh, Amos delivers this, this message to, to uh, Israel's unbelieving neighbors, God rebuking them for their merciless brutality, for their anger and their bitterness and their callousness that, that fueled injustice. 
God saw and he cared and he roared against the degrading and the betraying and the using and the abusing and the the crushing and the, the kidnapping and the trafficking and the enslavement of fellow image bearers. And now in chapter two, God turns his attention against the injustice of his very own people. It makes sense when it happens in the world because they don't know God. But when it happens among God's own people, the stakes are higher. The reason is because of our big idea this morning. God opposes all injustice, especially injustice among his people. God opposes all injustice, especially injustice among his people or cultivated among his people or done among his people or practiced among his people. What we're going to see this morning in chapter 2, verses 4 through the end, is God turning his attention. You'll remember the map. He went all around the nation of Israel talking to all of their neighbors, and it's drawing a bullseye to now he's going to talk to Judah for a moment, and then he's going to focus on Israel, the northern kingdom the one that Amos had come to to prophesy against. And what he is going to do is he's going to follow the same pattern that he did with the nations where he is going to highlight the fact that God's patience with them has, has expired and that he is now coming and roaring against the injustice that abounds among them. He will talk about their evil and then God's edict against it. And then we will conclude our time considering what it might look like to say or to point out some of the the evils that abound in the church in America today. So let's begin first here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 with God speaking to Judah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Again, Judah here is the the southern kingdom. This is the the, the kingdom that um, Amos is from. Uh, but he is traveling to the north, but this word toward the south comes first. This is, by the way, the only time that the southern kingdom is addressed in the book of Amos, other than one time uh, he, he, he mentions, Amos does in chapter 7, the southern kingdom once, but this is the only time that they're directly addressed and they're, they're evils. God uses here the same patterns that he used for the nations for three transgressions and for four We talked about this being a poetic device where God is saying that his patience with the people has run out, that they have sinned and God has been patient. They have been sinned and God has been, they have sinned and God has been patient. They have sinned and God has been patient and now they have sinned and God, God's patience in roaring against them has now come to, to an end and he will speak. He will speak against distinct evils that they have done. Verse 4, we see the heart of this evil. They have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. This is the most serious and saddening charge. God gave his law, also known as the Torah, the teaching, his instruction about who he is and, and what it means to be his people. He also gave his statutes. These are prescriptions of how they should obey him and follow after him. But they have rejected this law. I think it's really important to to notice here that this this isn't just the breaking of rules. They reject God speaking to them. They're being unfaithful to his covenant that he made with them. And rather than following his law, they have followed lies. Verse 4, their lies have led them astray. You see, when we reject God's word, when God's people reject God's word. And again, remember, he's talking to the people of God. When God's people reject God's word, it is always in favor of a lie. 
We are all being led by something. You see, our hearts are designed by God to be pre-programmed to be led by ideas. God is truth. We are designed to follow his truth. But in our sin, we will reject that truth and we will be deceived and we will follow other lies. False philosophies or prophets, teachings that are constantly uh, calling for our attention. We've got to know that their, their source, these lies that Judah was chasing after, they come from, ultimately, from Satan, the father of lies. John 8, Jesus said, the devil does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Ephesians chapter 2 says that before people became Christians, they walked after the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air. We followed Satan. That's what the world does. That's what we did. But you got to see here that believers, or those who profess his name anyway, God's people, can be duped and follow after lies as well. Satan is always aiming to undermine God's word, for us to be wise in our own eyes and to follow after our own hearts rather than God. This is what Satan has always been doing. Judah had fallen into the same trap that Adam and Eve have in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, you will not surely die? Satan is always aiming to undermine God's word. And this has been going on for a long time here, verse 4. Those lies after which their fathers walked. Judah has followed in the unfaithful footsteps of previous generations. When you read through uh, the, the Kings and the Chronicles, you don't have to look far for generations to see generations following after distortions of the truth. One of the things that's important to notice this, by the way, is that, or to think about here is that generational sins are uniquely deceptive because they're difficult to see. Why? It's because it's all you've ever known. You grow up with this is what mom and dad and grandpa and their grandparents thought. I mean, imagine being born into a Christian home in the 1800s where slaveholding was portrayed as a righteous act because of the curse of Ham. It's the doctrine of the curse of Ham that, that says that this is a righteous thing that's actually good for the, the enslaved African. It gives us an opportunity to be in the land here where they can hear the gospel. You're raised with that idea. Imagine how difficult it is to see that it's a lie. Judah had plenty of their own lies that they followed after. Now, I think it's important as we work through this to ask a very important question. And the question is, how do you know if you've rejected God's word? How do you know if you're being led by lies? You look at your life Your words, your actions, your attitudes. Hear this. You cannot love God and you cannot love people apart from obeying God's word. Relating to others, speaking to others, having a heart posture towards others that, that is love is going to line up with what God says love looks like. It is patience. It is compassion and tenderness and forgiveness that is manifestation of obedience. That is obedience, and that's, that shows that you're walking in the truth rather than all sorts of excuses and justifications for entitlement to, to feel and act and speak certain ways against people. We become masters in justification for our sin because we like other philosophies that lead us to say and do things that we, we want to. Abandoning pure doctrine always leads to sin against other people. Always. It's connected. Well, what's God's edict here against Judah? 
Verse 5, I will send a fire upon Judah. Echoes the same judgment brought on the other nations. This fire would come um, in 586 B.C. when Babylon would come against Judah and tear down Jerusalem and the temple and lead people away into captivity. Something important to notice about this, Ben Hamilton pointed this out to me last week, is that this judgment that's coming against Judah, just as with many of the other judgments that God had proclaimed back in chapter 1, there's a delay in when it happens. For Judah, it's 175 years until this judgment is going to come. It's important for two reasons. The first is that God's judgments can sometimes seem slow, but they are always certain. Sometimes they can seem slow, but they are always certain. The second thing is that to remember that God's patience should lead us to repentance. Second Peter chapter uh, two tells us, or three tells us that the reason that God is so patient is so that people will repent. And you know what's really interesting? In Judah's history, there were times of repentance and revival after this word came. You've got Hezekiah and Josiah where there were times where there was revival. One of the reasons that the, the southern kingdom lasted longer than the northern kingdom is because they actually responded in faith to what the prophets said. You had no good kings in the northern kingdom and it, it, it led to a quicker destruction. You had kings who responded in faith and leaders who responded in faith in the southern kingdom and it led to more mercy being extended. So it actually matters how you respond to God's word. God's delayed judgment is intended to lead us to repentance. Well, that is God's word against Judah. Now in verse 6, he turns to Israel. Israel will be the focus of the rest of the book. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, and that should be a little g, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. It is stunning how much evil is packed into those three verses. There are social injustices, there is sexual immorality, and there is syncretistic idolatry. Now, I think it's important before I unpack these for just a moment to remember that God gave his law to his people, Israel, and they were a nation. There was no sacred secular divide. And because of that, they were, they were to follow God's law in every sphere of, of society. They were supposed to be a nation set apart from every other nation where justice reigned and ruled everywhere for the kings and the courts and the, the religious people and in daily life, everything was to be marked by God's law. It's important because when we talk about the way this applies to the church later on, we see there's a distinction. It's not the same. The United States of America is not Israel. So we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But, but here, you've got to understand all of this is done before God's watching eye and the eyes of the nation's. First, notice here again the social injustice of the day. Verse 6, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This selling of the, the righteous may be the selling of people into slavery, which was explicitly forbidden in Exodus, or Leviticus 25, 39 through 42. Israel was forbidden to sell one another in slavery. It's very possible that, that here that Israel had embraced this, the evil of the day. 
Because we saw this happening last week with all the different nations who were involved in enslavement and kidnapping, enslavement and the selling of people. This could also be referring to bribes from wealthy uh, in exchange for, for partiality. That was also a sin, uh, Exodus 23.6. It's likely that both were happening on some level. So what's happening here is that the legal and the business arenas of society here were corrupted. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. Power structures were infected with injustice and the needy were helpless. The very people who God put in place to help them were using their power to oppress them. Verse seven, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the ground. This graphic description here of the oppression of the poor. It's like a, like a Black Friday stampede where people are just trampling over one another in order to get stuff. He says, that's what they do to the poor in my land where I gave tons of laws to protect them so that this would be a place where the poor and the needy and the weak and the marginalized would be cared for as a picture of the way that I care for people. But no, you're using your power to trample on people. You turn aside the way of the afflicted. They're indifferent to the need of those who are needy. They lay themselves down on garments taken by a pledge. I'm not sure if you know what he's talking about here, but in, in Exodus 22:26, God forbid anyone from keeping someone's coat that was used as collateral overnight. So if, if I needed to borrow some money from, from Butch, I would give him collateral because I need to buy some food for my family. So I would give him my coat. What he's not allowed to do is to keep it overnight. He's got to give me my coat back at night because it's cold at night. He's to be compassionate on me. And actually, in, in Deuteronomy 24, 17, you're forbidden from taking a widow's garment as a pledge at all. You see, God loves the poor and the needy and the exposed, and he gave laws to protect them, but the people here are dismissing it. So much so that they're going to their false gods' houses, and they're laying down there, either for the immorality that was mentioned or just to go to sleep, on the very pledges that God forbid them in having. They come from somebody who was needy that they took advantage of. God says, this social injustice is everywhere, and I see it. Then we have sexual immorality. Verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. A grievous evil here where we have adultery, we have immorality, we have a degrading of this woman. This would have been, by the way, a common practice associated with Baal worship, the false god of the day of the nations, where in order to commune with the god, you would lay with a temple prostitute God's law is filled with commands to, to keep God's people from doing this sort of, of perversion, to help us to understand sexual passions and, and the good gift that they are and how he intends for them to, to be used. God lovingly tells his people what sex is and, and how it is to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship of marriage. But instead of honoring God and his good and wise and benevolent design, they've adjusted God's word to accommodate their desires. And they have profaned, which means to take his name in vain, to make his name common. They have profaned his holy name so that when the nations look, when unbelievers look at the way that they were, um, the way that they were uh, handling sexual practices, it looked the same as everybody else. There's no distinction. He says, you've blasphemed my name. It seems to be undergirding all of this is the syncretistic idolatry. Syncretism is the, the mixing of one idea and another idea that seem to be opposed, but some way you find a way to put them together. It's what's behind all this evil that, like Judah, spurs from Israel rejecting the law of the Lord. They'd been led astray by lies into this syncretism. You see, there was a perpetual temptation in Israel that they gave into in the combining of elements of idol worship 
with elements of worship of Yahweh. Take a little bit of Baal worship and a little bit of Yahweh worship and let's put it together and we've got what's comfortable for us. We feel good because we've got Yahweh stuff and we get to do what we want because we've got Baal stuff. The immorality of the man and his father with that woman certainly is tied to that sort of Baal worship. It was commonplace where they would worship Yahweh on Sabbath and then they would go to the Baal temple throughout the week. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In Israel, there's to be only one altar where you approach God. But here there's many altars in view. Why? Because they're going after many gods. They've rejected the fact that there's one God for them, and they've gone after many. Verse 8, in the house of their God, and again, that should be a little g, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. People had unjustly fined uh, the, the, the poor, taxed the poor, and used that money to purchase wine to go into these bale houses and to get drunk and engage in the immorality. That's how you worship the, the deity. You would get caught up in this drunk craze and you would indulge and that's how you commune with the gods. He says, you're paying for that by oppressing people and taking money from people who don't have money so you can go in and do your evil. He says, and I see it all. I see it all. Now, before God speaks his word of judgment, which he will, beginning in verse 13, he, he wants to remind them of his faithfulness. He lays now this backdrop of all of their evil on, over and against his, his faithfulness to just show the seriousness of what they're doing. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And who's strong as oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was also I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, people of Israel, declares the Lord? God reminds Israel here of all the evil that they have been doing is done in the face of the one who had done nothing but be good to them. All of his dealings are done in faithfulness because he made a covenant promise and God is a co covenant co promise maker and keeper. He's only ever been good to them. God says, it was I who destroyed your enemies so you could go into the land of Canaan. It was I who delivered you from Egypt so you could go out of the house of slavery. It was I who gave you spiritual leaders so that you would not walk in the darkness of your own sin and you would know my love for you. It was I. Isn't that true, Israel, he says. He says, fact check that, y'all. No lies detected. I've been nothing but good to you, he says. But rather than respond with humility and love and faithfulness and contrition over their sin, they sinned more. He says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. Nazarites were, were uh, uh, you could take a, a Nazarite vow, was a, a unique vow that you, you could take to be devoted to the Lord for a season. Uh, part of the vow would be you wouldn't cut your hair, you wouldn't touch dead bodies, and you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't drink as a way of being set apart from all that is unclean, if you will, uh, and to focus uniquely on the Lord. But rather than see people's devotion to the Lord and be inspired to be devoted all the more, they force them to break their vow. They're like, oh, come on, Nazarite, it's just a shot. Get you a little bit. But I've been devoted to the Lord. Oh, devoted, shamoted, whatever. Who cares? Just take a little bit. It's because they have no fear of God and no care for him. He says that he commanded the prophet saying, you shall not pro prophesy. Rather than hear God's word, they silence those who rebuke their sin. 
The severity of this scene should not be lost on us. God has lovingly made them and redeemed them and protected them and provided for them. He's given his law. He's given the prophets. He's given himself. He's been loving and tender and patient and good to them. And rather than be moved to respond to the grace that they've been shown with love and hatred for sin, they take what they like from God and then they look elsewhere to find justification to do what they want to do. And they mix the two together and they feel good about their standing with God because they're the people of God. But God sees through it. He sees and he knows the truth. Verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. The Lord says you're about to feel the weight of my hand of judgment upon you. And he uses this image of a cart. If you've ever done any kind of farming or whatever, you, 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 you load up a, a, a trailer or, or a truck with so much stuff it begins to sag down. He says, that's what it's going to be like on you. And I'm, I'm like, like when you fill up a, um, this, this cart with, with sheaves of grain and it sags, that's what, you're, that's what I'm about to do to the nation. I'm about to make you sag. I'm about to make you break. God says, I don't care how fast you run. I don't care how much you can bench. I don't care how sharp a shot you are. I don't care how many medals of honor you got. Nobody's surviving in this day. The day on which the Lord was speaking was roughly 40 years away. Assyria would soon come. They would siege the city. They would kill thousands. They would strip the survivors naked. They would put hooks in their mouths, tied to ropes like fish on a stringer. And they would lead them off to Assyria in captivity. God says, you, you don't want to listen to my word? Okay, thy will be done. I will send you to a land where you will not hear my word. You like idols? I'm going to show you what your idols want to do to you. Thy will be done. The scariest thing that God can say to a people is thy will be done and he hands them over to their own desires. All they've wanted is idolatry and immorality. God says, fine. You will receive the due punishment of your error. Well, we see what God said to the, his people Israel. Now, I think it would be wise for us to consider what would God say to his people in the church today? Last week, we considered what God might say to America generally. Today, what might he say to the church in the United States of America who claims his, his name? 1 Peter 4.17 says, It is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. Hebrews 10.31, written again to God's people, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Before we seek to apply some of this to our own day, I want to give two clarifying caveats that I think will be helpful for us to be able to make sure we're trying to interpret these things rightly and fairly. First thing to notice, as I've already alluded to, is that the church isn't Israel. The, the church isn't Israel, meaning the nation of Israel. It's a true spiritual Israel, yes, but that's different than being the nation of Israel. 
It is incorrect for us to draw a one-to-one correlation between what God said to Israel and what he is saying to us. Israel was a nation bound by geography, governed by laws that God gave to direct the kings and the courts and the worship and the society. The church is not a nation. It is not bound by geography. It exists in nations. It influences nations. But each local church is distinct and is accountable uniquely to God. You might think of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We spent seven weeks looking at God speaking directly to local churches, calling out their sin, much of which, if you remember, was tied to syncretistic idolatry with the nation around them, and then commending them for the things that they did well. So we relate to God as individuals before him, but also as churches before him, and churches are individual outposts of his new covenant kingdom. And there's thousands of them in the United States, okay? So there's a distinction between us and Israel, and we're going to try to be careful in the way we think about that. There is some continuity, but there's also some discontinuity in regards to the way that the church and the culture interact. Second thing, American churches are not all the same. American churches are not all the same. So talking about the American church has its challenges because not all churches in America are the same. Not all sin in the same ways. Not all face the same exact temptations, though there are many common temptations that churches in our countries face. We, as in Amos' day, feel specific, idolatrous philosophies that, that tempt us to... We face these idolatries that that tempt us to to synchronize the worship of Jesus with other idols and ideas that lead to immorality and injustice. So there's philosophies in the air, if you will, all in our country, but they affect different churches in different ways. But you've got to know that every church is tempted, and every church sins in this in different ways. An example, just a real brief example of uh, this happening in another country would be, uh, how many of you have ever uh, been to a church in Haiti or have ever done any ministry work in Haiti? Okay. Haitian Christianity constantly battles against the syncretism with voodoo. It's the the mixing of, of the cultural practices of voodoo, which are commonplace in the church. The church is constantly having to fight back all of that mystical, demonic stuff that so often uh, results in, in, in the mixing of, of religions that leads to all sorts of, of sin, harm, and danger. Now, in the United States, temptations abound to abandon pure devotion to God's word, to mix our worldly philosophies with philosophies about politics, race, and sexuality. Those are the three that I'm gonna address. There were two other ones, but I ran out of time. We'll put them in elsewhere. Now, before I start, one more thing, because I have no more caveats after this. These temptations swirl in the air all around us, and they tempt our church, and because of the diversity of our church, I'm likely to offend everyone. I'm not trying to offend everyone, but I'm assuming that everyone today is going to find some way that this gets up in your grill. I hope so, because I've been wrestling with this all week, and I've been battered on every side as well. So I'm not here just trying to blast us. I think generally God has blessed our congregation, God has greatly blessed our congregation, and I think we strive to honor him. But temptations abound. Number one, philosophies about politics. Philosophies about politics. Political fervor has always marked our country, and the church has always been tempted to mix God and country in ways that that produce unfaithfulness to God's command. 
There are certainly ways that we should relate to the government that produce faithfulness to God's command, but we can very much be tempted toward idolatry and syncretism in this area of, of politics. I'm going to use the language of spectrums. That's to avoid the language of sides. I think sides is unhelpful because there's spectrums that lead in different directions. It's the best I can come up with. I'm happy, to, I'm happy for you to send emails to Jason. It's fine. One spectrum. One spectrum are those who see faithfulness to God as being faithfulness to the nation. Faithfulness to the nation is faithfulness to God. This goes beyond the faithfulness to stand for what is right in the honor of God, which everyone thinks they're doing, by the way, but is a sort of Christian nationalism that has various forms and intensities, but very real dangerous effects. This was, for instance, on display recently at the attack on our nation's Capitol building, where rioters stormed the Capitol carrying crosses, had patches on fatigue saying armor of God, holding signs saying Jesus saves. You can scour the internet for quotes. But in so doing, thinking that they're doing the work of God, endangered lives and cost lives, attempting an insurrection in the name of Jesus. It's a this sort of blindness is similar to what Paul thought he was doing in serving God while persecuting Christians. It's tied to a fervor, ties a national fervor and a religious fervor together in a way that leads to dangerous places. There's another spectrum. And again, I know I'm going to leave stuff out and I'm not going to be as nuanced. Just receive it, please. The other spectrum are some who demonize those who align with the current administration, so much so that they'll break fellowship with them. Won't even take the Lord's Supper with people who have voted differently than them, or worse yet, do take the Lord's Supper and are so convinced that they're justified in their bitterness against people that they take the, name, the Lord's name in vain as they do it. That can happen on both sides, of course. But some in this vein are are tempted to overcompensate from the error on one side and minimize the injustices in their own party and begin to distort and undermine God's word. Again, these, these errors on both spectrums have led to injustice, to bloodshed at this time, bloodshed over this. False accusations, slander, bearing false witness, those are injustices, by the way. When you slander someone or bear false witness, it damages their reputation, which God says is worth more than silver and gold. People lose jobs and livelihood. Bitterness begins to brew in the heart in a way that withholds love and compassion and care for the souls of others. To watch the way that people in the name of Jesus speak to one another in this day is appalling, claiming righteousness and doing it. It's because there's syncretism and idolatry in politi political ideas. And again, everybody assumes Jesus is on their side. Me too. We're, we're all tempted in this. We are all blinded by our prejudices. And this is why we need one another. But Satan will do whatever he can to divide us. But Jesus has a different way. Consider his disciples. <laughs> Matthew was a tax collector who loved Rome. Simon was a Jewish zealot who hated Rome. Jesus says, both y'all come with me. You see, they came to Jesus with radically different political views and they found unity in him. Matthew probably learned to love Rome less and Simon probably learned to love Rome a little more. But they both learned to love Jesus most. You see, Jesus taught and modeled 
very little, actually, for his disciples about how to relate to Rome. He rarely allowed them to get drawn into political disputes. Why? Because they were focused on building the kingdom, not of this world. I wonder for some of us, if we've spent more time thinking about and talking about political parties and political agendas than we have investing that time with unbelieving neighbors who are on their way to hell. Now, I understand that many of you serve our country politically. Thank you for your service. I'm going to trust that God has placed you there, so do your work faithfully. Promote righteousness. But all of us must guard our heart and hearts. Satan is at work, and not just among them. He's coming after us as well. Much more could be said, obviously. Let's go on to presuppositions about race. Racial tension and opposition, confusion has always marked our country. The, the church in the United States has always struggled to respond faithfully to it. Right now, as in every age of this country, various cultural philosophies bombard the church about race. Again, there's different variations of this, but, but you've got to understand, worldly philosophies are always aiming to undermine the unity that Jesus died to create and that he commands us to cultivate. On one spectrum, you have some who only see racism as a thing of the past, who assume that when unjust laws were changed, that racism and all of its effects were erased. Some who who are tempted into this thinking, are so committed to denying its existence that they even suggest that talking about racism creates racism. Now, I certainly think there's ways that talking about racism can create racism, but merely having the conversation, suggesting that, I think is a dangerous way of thinking. Some in this spectrum would deny any form of inequality in the lives of minorities in our land. Those who embrace this sort of thinking to varying degrees, again, can become calloused toward the plight of others, can be tempted to withhold compassion, can restrain locking arms to do good to our neighbors. There's another spectrum for some who see racism in every interaction who develop a, a lens that only sees color, begins to see everything in social and economic terms rather than gospel, biblical, social, or spiritual terms, begin to assume that anyone in power from the majority culture is an oppressor, and begin to see disagreement automatically as blindness or some sort of abusive microaggression, begins to impact every interaction that you have with people, and how you interpret them. Develop a grid of who you'll trust and who you won't trust, who you'll love and who you won't love, who you'll serve with and who you won't serve with, who you'll submit to and who you'll not submit to. And these, these competing narratives about race get linked with Scripture in ways that twist Scripture. We are all tempted to turn up the volume on scriptures that resonate with our convictions and the way we see things, and we're all tempted to downplay or mute scriptures that push back in another direction. There's a new sort of segregation in our day where we're just saying, you know what? I'm tired of the conversation, and we're all going to go to our safe places where everyone thinks like us. And whichever spectrum you're on, we can develop this defensiveness and this touchiness that saps dialogue and fuels assumptions about one another. And we begin to slander one another and cancel one another and break fellowship with one another rather than listen and love and labor with one another. And again, we do it all in the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
we always assume Jesus would be on our side. We tend to be blinded to our own prejudices. Brothers and sisters, the conversation about race is hard. It's real hard. But Jesus shed his blood and he made us one. We are one. And at the same time, he commanded us to lean upon the strength of his Holy Spirit to labor for that oneness, to experience it and to know it and to enjoy it. And you've got to know that Satan hates it and he will do all he can to work against it. But when you read through the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, you see this is what God's doing. He's taking people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and putting them together. But you've got to know there are worldly philosophies that are pulling us apart and many of us are tempted to latch onto ones that we feel comfortable with. May God help us. The third one that we'll do this morning is progressive sexuality. Progressive sexuality. Our culture has no place for God's design for sex. The view is that to be to be progressive in these areas is actually to liberate people who are being oppressed by God's word and his, his design. Again, on, on, the, on the one spectrum, you have churches who, who profess the name of Jesus and at the same time fly rainbow flags announcing their allegiance with, with acts that God calls immoral and that warns actually destroy people's lives. Churches, in the name of Jesus, condone the very things that God condemns. They reject God's law, saying it's, it's bigoted, it's outdated, it's oppressive, it's in the dark. Yet, sadly, in doing so, end up oppressing the very people that they're seeking to liberate. You see, when you assure someone that the sin that Jesus says is going to send them to hell is actually freedom, it's a lie. Not to mention all the ways that we further our, the sexual rev revolution by encouraging even children to doubt how God made them, giving exhortations to alter biological gender, all in the name of honoring God. Then we have another spectrum where there is a callousness toward people who maybe struggle with issues differently than, than some of us do. The church in, in our country generally has not done well in regards to being a refuge for people who are confused about their sexuality. Those who struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria very often, churches with people who profess the name of, of Jesus will simply demonize and unsympathetically write off or mock or shame fellow image bearers for whom Christ died. These are, at times, the same folk who find ways to condone normal sexual sin and kind of shrug a little bit at pornography or the adultery that comes through remarriage unlawful remarriage. They may be, may be much like the Pharisees who, you remember when the immoral woman was washing Jesus' feet? Do you remember what they said about her? About him? If, they would have, if he were a true prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is, that looking down upon with a heartless callousness that forgets that everybody in the room is a sinner and everybody in the room is sexually broken. We withhold love and service and patient care for one another. Now, the reason I bring up these is because, again, this is not just soapboxes. Many of these are tied to things that we see in the text, but these are philosophies in our day that people find ways of wrapping Scripture around and embracing in ways that lead off to immorality and to injustice. And I just want to encourage us as we think about what we've heard today to not become a master at seeing the speck in other people's eyes while ignoring the log in our own. 
the whataboutisms that some of you have even written down to email me about are deadly. If your impulse is the what about, what about, what about, rather than Lord, search me, show me, is there any grievous way in me? If your first thought is I hope so and so heard what he said, pray for them, but then pray for yourself because self-righteousness is a deadly, disorienting sin that the people of God often fall into. Now, in Amos, he ends here with no encouragement. Chapter 9, there'll be some. But one of the things that is found throughout the book that I want to highlight here as a means of encouragement is that throughout Amos, God identified the remnant who were faithful to him as well. I want to, hi- I want to highlight that because I want you to be in- encouraged that it is possible to honor God as well. We're not just doomed to fall into one of these ditches or get lost on one of these spectrums and just say, well, what can we do then? It's actually possible to be faithful to God. And I think our church strives after this, but please let us not be deceived into thinking that we can't get caught up in all of these sorts of things as well as countless others. This is why we wanna be a church that remains humble in prayer Praying, please pray, God, search us, show us. Convict me of things I need to take to Jesus. Be patient with one another. Everybody's tired. Everybody hates Rona. That's the coronavirus. Everybody hates it. All right, who's Rona? Yeah, we hate them too, right? No, we're talking about, everybody's tired. Everybody's tired. It's hard to keep turning on the TV and see more. It's hard to see friends leave. It's hard. One of the things that's scared me more and more in these days is I feel like I begin to understand when I look at the churches in our land and the way that some of us are being affected by everything, you begin to understand more of what Jesus meant when he said that many will fall away. May it be that none in here would allow their hearts to be so callous toward God and his word and one another over who sits in that, in a building across the way. And yeah, it's important. I get it. But it's not that important. There's a kingdom that doesn't pass away. May we be a church that's about that above all. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. He came and he did the same thing that God said that he did for for Israel. He, He defeated our enemies. He defeated Satan, the one who's behind all of these lies. He's the one who came and he defeated him by dying on the cross, shedding his blood to pay for our transgressions, nailing to the cross the certificate of debt that stood against us for all of our law breaking. And then he went into the grave and three days later he rose from the grave victorious over sin, Satan, death, and all of his lies. He, he defeated the enemies. He delivered us. If you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ, if you're here today and don't know Jesus, this is what he wants from you. The greatest injustice that has ever occurred is that creatures crucified their creator and felt justified in so doing. Do not align with that injustice by saying, ah, whatever with Jesus. Turn from your sin, Turn to him, believe upon him who shed his blood for you and who rose to give you life and to forgive you of your sin. And for those who are in Christ, he sends his word to us. He gives us his spirit to hear, to discern, to sift, to sort, to pray, to help each other, to listen to one another, lock arms with one another, and to make his name known. May we not be a people who are led away by lies. But may we follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, through whom no one goes to the Father but through him.
His name is Jesus. May he help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you right now and we pray for grace upon grace. Father, as we take a moment of silence to reflect on what we've heard and to consider it, we pray that you might help us to see one thing, at least one thing that we, we need to bring to you and to, to repent of or to be convicted of. Would you show us, Lord, would you press past calloused hearts or passive indifference? Lord, would you, would you show us by your word, through your spirit, something? Father, we pray that you would purify your people. The Delray Baptist Church would be a church, not that is perfect, for that is impossible, for only Christ is perfect, but that we would be humble and teachable, patient with one another, fueled by the grace shown to us in Christ. Lord, we need help. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.